You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 57. Hello again, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So, let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 15 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. We've now entered major spoilers territory, so if you aren't caught up, stop and listen to the previous episodes before continuing on to this week's story recap. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have just survived a skimmer bombing, courtesy of the noble scion-turned-insane nightmare beast Ezekiel Kapler. Lord Ezekiel is convinced that the detectives, the Lightbringers, and the Vampire Syndicate are all involved in a conspiracy to bring down his noble house. Zeke and his friends exposed themselves to the power of the mysterious Telvari Rift, which mutated their bodies and gave at least some of them remarkable psychic powers. Zeke now believes that the vampires want the Rift's power for themselves, and that they have struck a bargain with Lightbringer Commander Jaina Starson in order to take it from House Kapler. Zeke responded to this supposed threat by trying to kill Janus and everyone else who was nearby, including Kate and David. Zeke also kidnapped his girlfriend, Julia Matthias, taking her away from the scene moments before the bomb exploded. Kate has had enough. She's ready to label Zeke as a terrorist and send the Imperial Ministry of Justice after him. Unfortunately, doing so would negate the entire reason they'd been at the meeting with Janus in the first place. Janus has promised to help get Julia, Misty, and Sefi back to the Rift without Zeke or his father finding out about it. The three women have all become unwitting hosts for a group of magical symbionts, who became trapped in their bodies because of an accident at the Rift. If the Imperial government starts investigating Zeke as a terrorist, then Julia, Misty, and Sefi will all be treated as witnesses or accessories, and Janus won't have a chance to get the symbionts back home again. Kate then decides to use her local police powers to go after Zeke, charging him with attempted murder and reckless endangerment. But as Misty explains to Kate, the nobility have an intricate network of customs, traditions, and special laws that protect them from commoners like Kate. She might be able to get him to show up for his court date, but there's no way she can convince him to hand over Julia before tomorrow night, when the Lightbringers are supposed to take them back to the Rift. Their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Morgan Drowling, who confirms that Misty's assessment is correct. Morgan decides that there is only one solution. She and Misty will go to Kapler Tower and ensure Julia's safe return. As the scions of two powerful noble houses, Morgan and Misty know how to play the nobility's games, and when not to. Meanwhile, Kate and David head for the local chapter of the Church of Hedonism, where Misty's half-brother John is protecting her friend Sefi. The two detectives will take Sefi into protective custody, then transfer her over to the Lightbringers so she can return to the Rift. Misty has said that Sefi is unwell because of what the Rift did to her, but neither Kate nor David knows quite what to expect as they approach the back door to the Hedonist Temple. 
shortly after midnight. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 15 Continued Wednesday, April 11th, 2000, Christos Reckoning John answered the door on the fourth knock, just as he had the last time. Unlike last time, he was wearing pants. Kate was both relieved and slightly disappointed. Detective Katane, he said cordially, bowing to her. Back to see me so soon? I'm flattered. And you've brought a friend as well. Welcome. Kate closed her eyes and rubbed at her temples, trying to banish her lingering headache. John, I really don't have time for games right now. Where's Lady Sephira? Your sister asked us to take her into protective custody. She said the password is Tanshan Beth. When she opened her eyes again, John's demeanor had gone entirely serious. I see. You'd best come inside, then. He opened the door wider and admitted them, then locked and warded it behind them. Anyone else here? Kate asked. She could hear music coming faintly from the public section of the temple. Just a small midnight service, John said. One priest, a couple of acolytes, maybe a dozen faithful. No one else should be coming back here for at least an hour. He looked expectantly at Kate's shoulder harness. Kate crossed her arms and looked back at him, stubbornly. She wasn't about to hand over her weapons to anybody after what had happened to her tonight. John seemed to read the resolve in her eyes. He sighed. Very well. This way, detectives. The room he led them to lay two stories down and somewhere near the middle of the temple. Kate wondered just how big the complex actually was. This was prime real estate and had to cost the church a small fortune in rent. Kate got the sneaking suspicion that the Church of Hedonism was a lot bigger and more prosperous than she had previously assumed. The door was warded like Misty's room had been, and opened to John's handprint and the accompanying passphrase. The phrase was different from the last time, and no more intelligible, though it sounded like the same language. Let me go in first, John advised. At Kate's nod, he stepped inside. The room was furnished in soft, warm pastels of yellow, cream, and orange. The double-sized bed had a thick, quilted down comforter, and was piled with pillows and stuffed animals, some of which Kate recognized from her augury in Misty's bedroom. The light came from LED panels mounted flush into the ceiling. A pile of books sat in one corner atop a plush circular throw rug. A paperback novel sat next to a nocturna's lily on the nightstand. Overlaying all of this was a network of thin, white tendrils, each only a few millimeters thick and glistening with iridescence. They grew up the walls, wrapped themselves around the bedposts, covered the books and toys and the stems of the lily. They came together in a lumpy, meter-high mass on the middle of the bed, and it was here that John directed his attention. Sefi, hon, he said gently, you have visitors. The lump twitched. Tendrils reached up from the floor and wrapped themselves around John's legs. Golden lights flickered along their length, 
flashing back and forth between John and the bed. A moment later, the mass shifted, bulging upwards, and then Kate realized that she was looking at an enormous curtain of hair, or what had once been hair. Lady Sephra Hinlassos, who had been sitting cross-legged with her head bent forward, now sat up and faced her visitors, though it might not be correct to say she looked at them. Sephi's fair skin had turned as white as birch bark. Her eyes looked like polished opals, without iris or pupil that Kate could see. Her mouth hung half open, breathing softly and evenly. She wore no clothes, though her incredible mass of hair seemed more than adequate to protect her modesty. Her expression was distant and distracted. John, she said, you're back. Is it tomorrow already? Her voice sounded detached and vaguely unsettled, like someone speaking through a dream that she didn't much care for. Now that's an interesting philosophical question, David remarked. Sephra cocked her head to one side. A cluster of tendrils shifted across the floor, twisting and weaving like snakes, until they brushed against David's feet and began to climb up his ankles. The Wanderer she said, in that same distant voice. You still haven't found what you're looking for, have you? David's ears went back in surprise. I... No, he said softly. Not yet. Sephora's hair tendrils reached out to touch Kate in turn. But you have found the key, she said. Hello there. It's nice to meet you. Uh... You too, Kate said, looking for something to connect with in the young woman's face. Her vacant mother-of-pearl eyes didn't give Kate much to work with. Did Misty tell you we were coming to get you? We knew, Sephra assured her. We see. Today, and tomorrow, and yesterday, and next year. We see. A faint frown creased her brow. It's hard seeing everything at once, though. Hard to stay... here. Now. Fascinating. David took a few steps closer to the bed. Sephra's hair moved with him, maintaining the connection without hindering his movements. The rift must have made her an esper. You can see the future? Yes, Sephra said. And no. We see... All of the futures. All the paths. What, like alternate timelines? Kate asked. All the paths, Sephra repeated. That's gotta be a lot of possibilities, Kate said. Remarkable, David said. How far ahead do you see? To the end, Sephra said. The end? Kate asked. The end of what? Sephra cocked her head the other way. The end of the age, she said. The end of prophecy. Kate raised her eyebrows, impressed. Wow, how long is that? Not long, Sephra assured her. Two or three years. No more. The room became suddenly, deathly quiet. Sephra. David said, slowly. 
Are you saying that the end of the world is only a few years away? We see what we see, Sephra said. The key, the vessel, the broken circle, the torn curtain, the storms of fire. Then nothing. Darkness. She's been going on like that for days, John murmured. Death and fire and darkness and the end of the world. You see why we had to keep her here. Kate looked away from the woman's disturbing eyes. Yeah, she managed. Does she ever get any more lucid than this? Sometimes, when Misty is here. I think she grounds her a little, but it never lasts for very long. I wonder. Something in David's voice drew Kate's attention. The elf's eyes were wide and staring in fascination as he knelt at Sephra's bedside and took her hand. Sephra let him do it, but showed no reaction. Who gave you these visions? Who else is here with you, child? Sephra let out an inarticulate moan and began to tremble. Shh, David soothed. Peace. With his free hand, he drew out his wooden sickle. David, Kate said, her tone wary. What are you doing? There's something here, Kate, David whispered as he held the sickle over his heart. She's seen something. She's been... touched. I have to know. Kate felt the stirring of mana in the room as David drew on his power. The biomancer's aura was subtle by human standards, a whisper of rustling leaves and the scent of freshly turned earth. Sephira gasped as the power touched her, but after a moment, her breathing slowed to match David's. Her tendrils drew in from the rest of the room and wrapped themselves around the elf, swathing him from the neck down. David kept his eyes fixed on her face and did not move. "'What is he doing?' John asked." His voice was barely more than a whisper, as if he feared that speaking too loud would break the spell. He's looking for his epiphany, Kate said, matching his tone. Damn it, I've seen him get sucked into things before, but never on the job. A torrent of lights flashed back and forth between the elf and the former human. David's face took on an expression that Kate had only seen in drug users and religious ecstatics. Sephra's face held... Nothing, or at least no emotion recognizable as human. Kate, David whispered, I can see it. I can see their home in the rift. Tree and star, I wish I could show you. Kate crouched down next to him, nervously eyeing the mass of living hair. That's great, David, but we're sort of on the clock here. Can you get her back to the present enough for us to move her? I can try, I suppose. David sounded puzzled, like he couldn't remember why staying in the present would be a good thing. Kate touched his cheek, one of the few parts of his body that wasn't swarming with Sephora's hairs. Do it. Come on, partner. I need you. I... yes. And I need you. David closed his eyes, his brow furrowing in exertion. Slowly, the hairs began to draw back. It looked like they were contracting into Sephira's head, which raised the interesting question of where the extra hair went. 
Kate was struck by the sudden, giddy image of a thousand tiny spindles whirring under the surface of Sephora's head. She decided to blame the concussion. David rose, rubbing his hands on his jeans and flexing his fingers. Well, that was a curious sensation. I'll bet. Kate looked at Sephora, who was now surrounded with a halo of twisting, churning locks of hair. It made her look like she was underwater. Lady Sephora, can you see? We need to get you to the skimmer. I don't see in the way that you mean it, Sephora said. But I'm not really blind, either. And I notice you're using singular pronouns again, Kate said. Did your friend give you back control? Friends, Sephora said. I'm hosting five spirits besides my own. Kate gaped. Five? But Amani told us there were only five in total, including her. At first, yes, Sephora agreed. But two more voices have joined the great chorus. Two more... Before she even finished asking the question, the answer came to her. Travers and Hal. Gods. Their spirits had lost their homes, Sephora said. We will take them in. We have done so before for others. Another connection fell into place. Is that what happened to Lightpath 1? You took them in? Their bodies could not survive exposure to the surge, but their spirits lived on and found a place in the great chorus. Gods, John swore. You're talking about immortality. No wonder they don't want Count Halloway finding out about it, Kate said dryly. She felt a profound sense of relief. Hal's spirit is alive. I didn't fail him completely. No, you didn't. The sound of Hal's voice almost made her jump out of her skin. She looked up in the direction it had come from and found the Nocturna's lily, joined to Sephora by one lock of hair. Ah, David said, mostly to himself. So that's what the lilies were for. Sympathetic resonance. Ingenious. Oh, Eli. Kate went over and touched a trembling hand to one of the blue and white blossoms. How? I can't believe it. I thought we'd lost you. Luckily, Sephi here made contact with us before my body gave out completely, Hal said. A second voice came from the plant, old, gruff, but sounding oddly pleased. I, she's a special girl, this one. Mr. Travers? Kate asked. That's me, Bernie Travers said. Or was me. It's sort of crowded in here, if you take my meaning. Sometimes I forget where me stops and one of the others picks up. But they're good folk, for as strange as it all is. I wish I'd taken them at their word before. Fighting them wasn't good for any of us. I'd call that an understatement, Kate said. Sorry, I just can't believe you're okay with this. Well, don't mistake me, Travers said. I'd rather have my body, of course. But it was wearing out in any case, and from what the others have told me, there's a life worth having at the rift, if we can reach it. And that's the catch, Hal said. We're running out of options, Detective. Sefi was the only one with the strength to carry more than one of us. Probably has something to do with her majory. If she dies before we get back to the rift, all of us will go with her. Yet another reason why Misty couldn't risk exposing her. Kate grimaced. 
Got it. We'll do everything we can to help you. Sephra, can you store up extra mana here before we go? That should help you last until we can get you to the Lightbringers. Yes, Sephra said. There's a great deal of life energy here. Kate thought about the religious service, translation, hedonist orgy, that was taking place two floors up, and grimaced. Sephra was right. Sex was a powerful source of life mana. She just hoped that Sephra wouldn't soak up any of the Daedra's essence along with it, like Kate had. The process did not take long. Sephra closed her eyes and focused her will, and Kate felt the flow of mana around her as the young noblewoman tapped into the abundant power available and drew it into herself. The mana filled her amalan and saturated her aura with life-aspected energy. Kate looked hard for evidence of Daedric essence in her aura, but she didn't see it. Apparently, Sephra didn't have that particular knack. We are ready, Sephra said. Good. Let's get out of here. John, if you'd take us back to the service entrance, please. Of course, detective. John's smile made uncomfortable flutters in Kate's stomach. Not now, damn it. She gritted her teeth and followed wordlessly behind him. They buckled Sephra into the seat behind Kate and David's skimmer, then put the Nocturna's lily on the floor beside her. If the symbionts could use the lilies as a long-distance communications net, having one handy could prove extremely useful. How far is it to Lightbringer headquarters? John asked, as he closed Sephra's door for her. Twenty or thirty blocks, Kate said, gesturing south and a little west. Valley Central Borough. Shouldn't take long at this hour. John nodded, then surprised her by taking her hand and giving it a gentle squeeze. Catherine, be careful. The warmth and concern in his voice took her completely off guard. After a moment, she managed, Why do you care? Besides the fact I'm helping your sister's friend. Seffy's my friend, too, John said. You forget I used to be one of these people. But it's more than that. He smiled. Not seductively, but with genuine admiration. I've been watching you for a while now. You have? How? Why? John's smile broadened. How? You're a public servant, Catherine. Information about you isn't that hard to find, and the church has more resources than most. Why? Because you helped Morgan get free of Braddock, and I wanted to know why you did it to understand what kind of person you were. Morgan's important to me. I see. Suddenly, Kate understood Morgan's relationship with House Halloway a lot better. And what big revelation have you learned about me from all this illicit spying? The company you keep, John said. You stand up for those the system labels as freaks or outcasts. Your landlady, Morgan, Hal, Misty, and now Seffy. He nodded at David, who was climbing into the skimmer and starting up the lift turbines. Hells, even your own partner doesn't fit in. Not here and not with his own people. Kate pulled back her hand and crossed her arms. What's your point? John pointed at the sheath where she kept her Arthana. You're an illusionist. You could literally be anything you wanted to be. Fit in with any crowd you chose. I know what that's like. I use it to get access to the society that fucked me over. So now I get to fuck them as payback. His smile thinned. 
You have the same power, and what do you do with it? You hang out with the people who don't have any power, and the people who rejected power. Kate shrugged, feeling uncomfortable. Maybe those people just make for better company. John grinned, his amber eyes sparkling. That's what I mean. The freaks and outcasts, the sinners and scoundrels, we're all better company. For you... You may look like one of those pretty, clean-cut, upstanding guardians of order and virtue, but you don't belong with them. He leaned in close until his breath came hot on her ear. You belong with us. Kate's whole body shivered, but she clenched her jaw and pushed him away from her. He let her do it and stood there passively while she leaned against the skimmer and fumed. You've got some balls, mister, she growled, but you don't know me. He sketched her a bow. Then live long enough to prove me wrong, or to see I was right after all. Either way, I find myself curiously attached to your ongoing health and prosperity, so again, be careful, Catherine. With that, the incubus turned and walked back into the temple. His words hung in the air, an unanswered invitation. You don't belong with them. You belong with us. You don't know me at all, Kate whispered. But she wasn't sure whether she was trying to convince John or herself. And that's the end of chapter 15. What is the meaning of Sethi's visions? What did David see when he joined with her? And when will the vampire syndicate make its move against Sethi? The mystery continues next week. Steve Allman said, All readers come to fiction as willing accomplices to your lies. So, let's see what schemes I've been hatching this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,765 words this week, over the course of six hours, for an average writing speed of 794 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 11 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on my sci-fi ghost story, The Nearness of You. It's now up to about 3,200 words, and I think I'm about halfway through it. I'm hoping I can finish it in this coming week. I also wrote a new author commentary for the Patreon feed. This one is about the ways I handle accents and character voices in Metamore City, particularly in Things Unseen. It's accessible to patrons of all pledge levels, If you're currently contributing at less than $3 a month, this is an example of the sort of bonus content you're entitled to at the $3 level. There are already a bunch of author commentaries in the feed, and I'm going to be working on bringing you more of them in the coming months. If you aren't a Patreon patron yet, you can see these by going to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and making a pledge today. And now, the feedback. A number of you have written in over the last few months to say you were having trouble downloading new episodes. 
At first, I thought this was some kind of problem with their internet service providers, but then Metamorph Paul Perkins did some investigating and posted the results on the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. It turns out that people weren't just timing out because of a bad connection. My web host server was actively cutting them off in mid-download. Needless to say, I wasn't happy about this. When I asked my web host about it, they said that their hosting package isn't designed for streaming audio or for long downloads. If I wanted my podcast to work right for all of my listeners, I would need to rent access to a private server. Unfortunately, my web host made setting one up about as hard as humanly possible. It was time for a new plan for the podcast. I did some research and decided that for my needs, my best bet was to transfer my files to Blueberry Media Hosting. So my original web host still provides the space for the blog, but when you ask to play or download any of the audio files, those get served from Blueberry. The new plan is considerably more expensive than my old one, but it's not crazy, and they don't charge more based on the number of people who download the file. I tried out the new system, and it seems to work well. If you have any more problems downloading going forward, please let me know. And hey, if you're not a Patreon patron yet, why not chip in a few bucks a month to help cover the cost of the new hosting service? Every little bit helps. After the most recent episode, Dennis Pozzi had this to say, I really love all the powerful women in your story universe, and especially in this story. I look forward to the havoc that this dynamic duo, meaning Morgan and Misty, is going to unleash on the nobility. I love the respect you show for your characters and their universe. I really enjoy that even when characters are aligned for a clear common good, they remain driven by their own unique moral compass, work toward their own personal needs and ambitions, interpret the world through a personal worldview, and remain consistent. Morgan, Misty, Catherine, Miss Fallon, Callie, and Allura are all incredible forces to be reckoned with, and yet they are different in all the meaningful dimensions of their personalities. Unquote. Thank you very much, Dennis. Balanced gender representation is one of those things I try to be mindful of as a writer. I was curious about how well I did on Things Unseen, so after I got your message, I went back and counted. There are 41 named characters with speaking roles in the novel. 20 are men, 20 are women, and one, Selindy, is an androgyne. I have to admit, I was kind of shocked that it was so perfectly balanced. I also try to be as conscious as I can about what makes each of my characters unique. I never want any of them to come off as generic stereotypes. Regardless of what boxes they might fill, demographically, I ultimately want them to be individuals. There are lots of ways to be strong, and lots of good people can be driven by different sets of principles. I'm very glad to hear that that diversity is coming through in my writing. Thanks for weighing in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To make a monthly pledge to support the show, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. 
The links will be in the show notes. That's our show for this week. Tune in next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.